0: record yourself presenting, and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Chris Anderson about how the TED conference has helped change the way we learn. For the first time, we can see examples of the best educators, speakers, idea sharers out there. We can see what they do. We can be inspired by them. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Death, taxes, and public speaking. The first two are inevitable, but for most of us, the prospect of giving a speech in front of total strangers is the stuff of nightmares. Who better to help us than the man behind the TED conference? Chris Anderson became the curator of the TED conference in 2002, and TED videos are now viewed about a billion times a year. The presentations by speakers from all walks of life are usually short, smart, and always compelling. Chris Anderson's new book is called TED Talks, the official TED guide to public speaking. He joins me now to talk about it and about his career pre-TED. Chris Anderson, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks, Debbie. Chris, I understand that you're quite a good cook, and one of your specialties is chicken jalfresi? (laughs) <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what is chicken jalfresi and, and how did you learn to make it?
1: <laughs> that was unexpected. And I may give you completely the wrong answer, but um, my belief about chicken frezy, and it is a passionately held belief, is that it's, you know, it's a form of curry chicken but made with a lot of onions and green peppers as the kind of the base of it. It's a very spicy curry. And, um, you know, I could spend... 15 minutes or so explaining how to make the perfect chicken jalfrezi, at least as I define it. <laughs> as you but define there's perfect. there's going to be people out there going, no, stop, that's all wrong. <laughs> no, you, well, you
0: realize I'm going to get a lot of requests for your recipe. Uh, I know you were born in a remote village in Pakistan, and you attended an American school in the Himalayas. And you stated that you spent much of your childhood reading, observing, and lying out looking at the stars, thinking about ideas, catching frogs in irrigation ditches, and playing with farm animals. What did you think you wanted to do at that point when you grew up?
1: That sounds like a recipe for being a really awkward kid, right? That's, that that <laughs> Actually, that's, sounds that's, fascinating. Well, that's the narrative of someone who wants to think of themselves as a dreamer as opposed to being like socially awkward. It was probably a bit of both. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was the youngest kid in my class and wasn't always... Uh, how can I say the centre of the social fun? Um, but um, I think growing up abroad it does several things. I mean, it's certainly growing up with people who aren't who don't look like you and from different places, it just is natural that that becomes invisible almost. And um, and so it was very strange to come back to England, for example, as a kid and be told that you're a packy and beaten up and you're stuff beaten like that. Up.
0: Yeah, were you bullied?
1: Not horribly, but um, but yeah. Um, even though, you know, I was a Brit, I was a white kid, but still just being born in Pakistan and that being, that was a reason to, uh, for suspicion. Um, and the other thing was just growing up, spending time outdoors, you know, immersed in nature. There's so many amazing things you can do outdoors from collecting beetles to playing any number of games and growing up on this beautiful mountainside, looking out over 200 miles of, of the Indian plains, um, No, it was was a treat, and uh, I, I have always felt that was a huge gift.
0: Your parents worked as medical missionaries. Your father was an eye surgeon, an evangelical Christian, who ran a mobile hospital in remote areas of India, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. And you've said that your father was passionate about sharing God's love in a way that he knew best, which was to try and bring eyesight to those who didn't have it. And you stated that you wouldn't recommend someone to become that kind of missionary now. Why not?
1: Well, it's regarded now as proselytization, probably unwelcome in a lot of countries, certainly in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan. If you believe that the only thing that matters in life is religious faith and that the key to a satisfying eternity is to believe the right things, then, of course, you kind of have to do that morally morally. Uh, most people now don't believe that, and even my father um, actually came to change his view on Islam. And I think he no longer thought that Muslims worshipped a different God. I think he believed, came to believe that they worshipped the same God. And so it was it was interesting his own evolution of his his faith. Uh, but he formed a lot of very deep friendships with spiritual Muslims in the end. What I I did learn so deeply from my father, and I still believe is is true, is that it's really satisfying in life to work for something that's bigger than you are. You know, all our instincts are around our biological instincts are around having a successful life, you know, which at any one time might mean having, I don't know, 20% more than we have right now, um, owning a slightly, uh, bigger house or have, making slightly more money or whatever, finding the right person to fall in love with, making babies and, um, and having a great family. And that is, that is the kind of the biological recipe for a good life. And it's a really weird thing that he believed, which I think is is true because um, the atheist philosopher Dan Dennett also believes it. Um, he said in the very first talk uh, that I introduced to TED, <laughs> he said the secret to happiness is believing in something bigger than you are and living for it. I just think it's profoundly true. And it's probably one reason why I get so excited about uh, doing what I do at TED, where our mission is ideas were spreading. spreading. If you think about what that's saying, that's saying it's worth sharing this idea. This idea has a life of its own. This thing matters, right?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I understand that you were brought up to believe that the only way to lead a moral life was through the belief in God. But you kept meeting people who led these amazing, inspiring lives who had no such belief. How did that impact what you believe and how you wanted to live your life?
1: Well, it certainly opened the door to the possibility that you could do the right thing without having to pin it to a divinity. As a kid, I could never answer the question, okay, there's lots of doubts about whether Christianity is true, whether there is a God there. But if there wasn't one there, what do you say to someone who just says, I just want to be selfish? Like, why should I do anything other than serve my own interests? I couldn't think of an answer to that question. And so I I became convinced that the only way to really um, anchor... A moral system was was through belief in God. So seeing other people who, who really didn't have that belief, but still gave these lives of service, it was certainly a bit of a head scratcher. Like why, why would they do that? And I think part of the answer, at any rate, came from just observing what happens in nature generally. There's actually, <laughs> you know, throughout nature, creatures often act against their own interests. Why? from ants and bees to dolphins, elephants, dogs, so forth. There's, there's all manner of instances where animals behave in sort of odd ways viewed from a purely selfish you know point of view. I think I came to believe that it's actually a core part of being human, like a really deeply, profoundly core part of us, is that we get joy from... Giving at least some of the time. from, from the, There's a sort of an altruistic fire that is in there. It doesn't always come out and it doesn't exist in every circumstance. But it's actually in there and you can tap into that. And that, that, that is probably the source of morality at some level. And it's actually something that you can, you can build on and that humans can connect over.
0: Well, that sense of morality or that system of morality isn't really dependent on religion, it's really dependent upon your own personal views.
1: Well, that's right. So, so if you accept that that conscience, if you like, that sense of that there are times when you have to act in others' interests, if you accept that that's part of who we are, almost biologically, um, some mixed between biologically and culturally, it certainly takes away the argument that you have to have religion in order to be a moral person.
0: I am so in admiration of people that have certainty about their beliefs whether they're true or not accurate or not the fact that people have such deep faith that what they believe is true is a completely different way of seeing the world than than I am able to I would love to be so certain that I would want to die for my beliefs but I don't have I have very few beliefs that I feel are are worth dying over
1: well I actually think there's there's also a lot to be admired in being passionate about uncertainty. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, I think in many ways the most it takes
0: a lot of confidence. <laughs> well, it it
1: it, it does, and, and I think it's it's a beautiful stance about the world that there's actually incredible joy in realizing that we are ignorant of almost everything, and actually that the more that we learn, the more we learn how ignorant we are, and that there's excitement in that. Yes, and I think um, the only category of people who actually would never enjoy a TED Talk or would never um, enjoy aspects of science and so forth are people who already know all all the answers. I'm in admiration of people who are really passionate and have strong faith in certain core principles but who absolutely don't know everything and they know that they know uh, so little and are actually excited by that rather than depressed by that. That is where curiosity comes from. That is where the whole learning journey comes from.
0: Well, if you were in a place where there was nothing left to learn, what would be the point? Anybody that I encounter that acts like they know it all is immediately suspect. (laughs) Yeah,
1: we we agree on that.
0: How would you describe your religious beliefs now? Um, I
1: don't think I believe in a God who is both all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. I just don't think you can Reconcile those three things with the world that we see. Um, people try, but it's it's really it's really hard to do. I think you have to have a view of the world that allows for random evil to take place. Otherwise, you have to. If you believe in a god, you almost have to believe that that aspects of that god are kind of monstrous in some ways. Uh, and so, this the, the 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 view of life that I grew up with that every single thing that happened happened for a reason. I actually don't think that's a particularly healthy belief. I, I think. If they did happen for a reason, then that reason was often dastardly. You just there are just too many awful things happen in the world for it to be someone's reason who planned that. Right. At the same time, I think there's extraordinary mystery in the world. It's not clear at all that the sort of if you like the one reductionist view sort of of the scientific story is all that is to be said. You know, that, that there just are these atoms and forces and we are chemical scum on the surface of a random planet somewhere and that's it. That story has not yet given a good account of consciousness and of, of the actual human experience. The experience of what it is to be alive, what it is to feel, to love, to do all these things. There are physical explanations of biological robots that could do those things but they seem to miss out the main part of the story so anyway i I think there's there's so much mystery in the world and i think it's possible to be on a journey where you believe in spirituality you believe in a quest for connectedness you believe in a search for a deeper story without accepting simple answers that we grew up with or whatever and so i'm i'm i kind of feel that i'm on that journey
0: as a teenager, you went to a Christian boarding school in England and then went on to Oxford University where you initially studied physics. Did you want to be uh, a scientist?
1: Yeah, I wanted to be a physics professor. I wanted to smoke a pipe and have a jacket with leather elbows and, um, and pontificate to adoring students on how <laughs> amazing the universe really was and uh, inspire people that way.
0: Do you have that, a pipe and a jacket with leather patches? Well, you
1: know, I, I, I did when I was 18, just to, <laughs> pra- just to practice. Uh, and then I realized that to do physics at Oxford, you have to kind of plug in cathode ray oscilloscopes and do experiments and things that were terribly difficult and boring. And so I abandoned it.
0: What made you decide <laughs> to get a degree in philosophy, politics, and economics? What were you expecting to do with that type of degree instead?
1: It was just thinking, dreaming, um, trying to understand uh, the big... Questions about the world, I, you know who are we? what on earth is free will? Does it make any sense? Where does morality come from? all, all those things like and, and i 'm not sure I got that many answers from studying philosophy, but it was fun trying
0: When did you decide you wanted to be a journalist?
1: I stumbled on a book by Harry Evans, Sir Harold Evans, um, who was at the time editor of The Times and The Sunday Times, and then became head of Random House here. He wrote an incredible series of books about newsman 's English. And then about the design of newspapers and um, thinking of newspapers as, as craft. I'd never thought of it as craftsmanship. And so I'd always been interested on the one hand in the sort of scientific and that part of the world, but also in English and in language and in communication. And it felt like the craftsmanship of journalism as, as described in those books was incredibly exciting to me. And so I got I got hooked and I thought, boy, you know, as a teacher, I might talk to... 30 kids at university or something once a year. But in mass media, if you get it right, you can have a bigger imprint than that. And so there's possibly an arrogance there or something like that. But, um, but I just got excited about the, the scale that was possible going in, into that career.
0: Well, you worked on several local newspapers and then spent two years producing a world news service on a radio station.
1: Yeah, a two-person world news service.
0: That sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody'd have to manage and all the creative freedom you want.
1: Yeah, edit, write, and read it. It was great.
0: You moved back to the UK in 1984 and became hooked on computing. Mm. And that was pretty early. What was your first introduction to the technology?
1: I I did a course at one point, you know, programming Fortran, the cards that, that, you know, but And so the idea of a computer that you could have in your home where you could program it and literally see the answer right away on screen, that was mind-blowing. So I, I bought one of the early it – was, it was like a TRS-80 computer um, that you could program in BASIC on and got utterly addicted and engaged by it. Um, that was actually back in – first time I got – 1981, I think.
0: That's really early. And,
1: uh, yeah. And couldn't get it out of my head. And so, yeah, back in – 84, um, got a job as a, as a magazine editor in one of the early computer games magazines. Now, I,
0: I read that you snagged a job as a magazine editor, and I wanted to ask you, how does one snag a job?
1: <laughs> Talked a good game. I, I um, Before the interview, I volunteered for two weeks in a retail store uh, for no money, just um, just selling computer games, actually, to people. So you did ethnography, ethnographic so, research. Yeah. And so when I was up at the interview, I sort of sounded as if i knew something about subject matter, which frankly no almost no journalist did then. Right. It was this weird little hobbyist thing.
0: After a year of doing that, you decided to try to launch your own business and started your first company, Future Publishing, in 1985 with a $25,000 bank loan and no outside equity investors. And your new company initially focused on specialist computer publications, but eventually expanded into other areas, including cycling and music and video games and technology and design and you doubled in size every year for 7 years
1: <laughs> right place right time i mean it it was it's um, more than
0: that well, it's got to be more than that especially with your track record now
1: what was happening back then was that magazines were moving from a technology that had to be done at big scale you know it was a union production process and um, it, would, it would have taken a big investment to do it. Two, being able to typeset directly from a home computer, which yes. is what we did originally, and so so suddenly, five people and a dog and, and very little money, you know, set up in a, in the back of a garage in a village, could produce a magazine that would be printed and distributed across Britain, and uh, that was that's shocking. Now, There are actually very few businesses where you can combine that level of of low investment with with instant distribution. Other than the internet now, where where you know the right website can obviously scale quickly, but um, but we were able to basically launch magazines out of their own cash flow. Like you could delay paying the printer long enough to get income back from your early sales, and so it was pretty incredible. Like if you had the right idea, so long as so long as you had a high hit rate on what you launched, you could just launch magazine after magazine. And so we yeah we we went very quickly from one magazine to thirty. In seven years and then then ultimately like 150.
0: You sold your business to Pearson and moved to the U.S. in 1984 to do this again on a bigger playing field. What made you decide that you wanted to move to the U.S. at that point?
1: I think I've always felt like a global soul at one level. And so I just having had some success in the U.K., I wanted to see whether it could be done on a bigger stage. And when you looked at those American magazines, they were all doing the same stuff. But there were some things that Um, hadn't been tried out there, that we'd tried and seen to be really successful in the UK. And it felt like there was an opportunity. So we came over and tried again.
0: You named your new company Imagine Media and launched the magazine Business 2.0, which was a blockbuster success. Is it true that Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, gave you the title at your second TED conference in 1999?
1: It is true. The internet was surging, and the rules of the economy had changed. And so we thought, boy, you could have a magazine that was basically new rules for the new economy. And so that was what Business 2.0 was. And and yeah, I I was at my, I think, second TED and talking with uh, Jeff Bezos was a a passionate attendee of TED. And he was obviously, you know, Amazon was starting to take off. And uh, he got excited about the idea of the magazine and we were stuck on title and yes yeah, so yeah that was that was his suggestion and i knew instantly that that was a brilliant magazine name
0: you took your company public in 1999 and enjoyed a year of stock market glory and you talk about this at length in your ted talk in 2002 and i'm going to read a little bit of what you state My company had recently gone public and the market said that it was apparently worth $2 billion. A magazine I'd recently launched called Business 2.0 was fatter than a telephone directory, busy pumping hot air into the bubble. And I was the 40% owner of a dot-com that was about to go public and no doubt be worth billions more. And all this had come from nothing – Fifteen years earlier, I was a science journalist who people just laughed at when I said, I would really like to start my own computer magazine. And 15 years later, there are 100 of them and 2,000 people on staff, and it was just such heady times. The date was February 2000. I thought the little graph of my business life that kind of looked a bit like Moore's law, ever upward and to the right, was going to go on forever. I mean, it had to, right? Right. I was in for quite a surprise. Chris, what happened then? (laughs) What happened next?
1: (laughs) Well, um, so there's the dot-com crash. Yes. And um, the stock market did its thing quite dramatically. It took a while for magazines to follow, but our business was basically full of tech magazines and websites, and it was absolutely impacted by that, especially Business 2.0. So suddenly every internal number started plunging, and... um, the, yeah, the business went into free fall. We ended up having to let go half of the 2,000 people, which was completely gut-wrenching. And my self-image went from being annoying, you know, sort of ego-strutty entrepreneur to total loser. I, I felt such a fool that I'd even thought that it was because of me. And you realize that so much of what had happened had happened because of heady times. And then in the down draft, um, as you sort of fired people you loved most and and, uh, struggled tooth and claw to have the business survive at all. It was a horrifying and soul-destroying experience in so, so many ways.
0: I read an interview wherein you stated that you thought you might have been suffering from a strange delusion that you may have believed unconsciously that you were some kind of business hero. And then you started to watch your own net worth fall by about a million dollars a day every day for 18 months how do you keep from going crazy
1: <laughs> yeah that was basically down to zero essentially um it's it's hard you know and and the the mistake as you come to realize is is you had no business attaching so much to that we're we're very as humans we find it very hard to let go even though there's no evidence that having stuff having wealth success it doesn't actually bring you happiness you know, beyond a certain level. And that level, I think, is about $60,000 a year annual income in the US right now. Like Beyond that, there's no evidence that you actually get any more happiness from it. But you can't let it go. And when, it, when it's taken away from you, you you feel like crap. Uh, and that's, that's certainly what, what happened to me.
0: You mentioned that you felt like a loser, which I read as well. And you also said at that time when you referred to yourself as a loser that looking back on it now, what disgusted you more than anything is how the hell you let your personal happiness get so tied up with the business thing. Yeah, and and I think we're we live in this certainly in a country and in the culture here in New York where that's the way it is. I mean, who who doesn't let their personal happiness? get tied up with business. We want our personal happiness to be tied up with business because that's where we feel we can contribute. So many people feel that that's all they have is this opportunity to do well in the world and make money and buy things. You know, if we if
1: we could change the race that we all run and score different points, it would make the biggest impact on the world. And there's, there's a lot of people trying to do that now. Like, instead of just chasing after money... Chase after impact or chase after Knowledge. Yeah, more knowledge. I mean, there, there are so there are so many other things that we should be ranking um, other than other than money. And I think if we did, people could easily pursue that, that as a goal. Someone leaving college now should be pursuing different goals. Like what is what is the race you want to win? It's actually one of the most fundamental questions to ask, because your own self-esteem and, and your own actions and stuff like that are gonna get tied up in that. If you tie it to a company, you are guaranteeing that at some point you're going to get crushed because no no companies continue forever.
0: You eventually sold Business 2.0 and regained your financial stability. And prior to this, I believe it was just right before this time, you created your nonprofit organization, the Sapling Foundation. In 2001, Sapling acquired the TED Conference, which was originally founded in 1984 by architect and designer Richard Werman. Is it true that you cried at the first TED Conference you attended in 1998?
1: Wept. Wept. Glubbed. <laughs> but only on only on day three, day one, I was a little bemused by it, like why am I listening to all these different topics didn 't get it Day two, a few things started to connect and started to you know understand a bit the power of how knowledge connects. Day three, Amy Mullins gave a talk um, she 's an athlete she lost her legs when she, as a child, and um, she just described her life and her sense of possibility and potential and she swapped out her legs on on stage and in just a very sort of natural. And she was so inspiring to me and so touching. And, um, And so I think that that human element that is a key part of many talks, that really hit me like a sledgehammer there. And I just, yeah, I wept for whatever reason. Loved it.
0: In your initial presentation about what you were going to do with the conference, you quoted Jeff Bezos, wherein he said, Chris... TED is a really great conference. You're going to have to fuck up really badly to make it bad. <laughs> well,
1: this is the same Jeff Bezos who, who said a year before that he couldn't imagine TED without Richard Werman running it. And uh, and it was certainly the case back then that the most people in the community thought that transition away from Ricky Werman wouldn't work, couldn't work. It, it was dependent on his big personality. Um, and so part of the transition, making that work and bringing people along, and it was a scary process actually, was persuading people that TED was not about one person. It was actually there was an idea there, a core idea, which was this interconnection of multidisciplinary knowledge that people, we spend far too much time, for goodness sake, just digging our own trench and focusing on our own work, not nearly enough time looking at the broader context of how what we do connects with what other people do. When you do that, surprising things happen and that's where you get catalyzed that's where you start to get excited that's where innovation comes from that's where collaboration comes from we don't do that enough so we had to kind of make that argument that no 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 what happens here is actually really unique and really special and um we we can't let this thing die and so you know it's what encouraged me to change how ted was run instead of being a private for-profit thing Put it into a nonprofit, and so that then that meant it kind of had to be run for all of us. And I think it was. I think if I tried to say, "Hey, I can do just as good a conference as Ricky Werman," everyone would have left. But by saying, "No, no, actually, it's your conference, and my, my job is to hold the values that make it special," um, that was what did the trick.
0: You said that you now think of TED as a global organization, and that its global soul identity was inspired by your childhood. Would you still agree with that?
1: It's it's definitely a global organization. Ideas don't belong in any one country. They're for the world. Um, they're for all of all of humanity, and they cross borders naturally all, all the time. And I think it's true that after the transition, I did bring in a lot more global content to TED, and sure, that was motivated by the fact that you know I'd grown up in lots of different places and and saw myself, I guess, as a global soul.
0: You met your wife, the founder and CEO of the nonprofit Acumen Fund at a TED conference. Is it true that you fell in love with her watching her give her TED Talk?
1: Oh, boy. Now therapy has moved to <laughs> to real probing here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I
1: fell in love with Jacqueline for many reasons. And certainly one of them was um, seeing her on stage. She's a spectacular and inspiring speaker. Um, but the work that she's doing is is the real deal. And um, she lives for the world in a, in, a, in a very beautiful way. So I think that was probably, those were several of the reasons why I fell in love with Jacqueline. Yeah. I'm
0: sorry if I'm embarrassing you. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. <laughs> let's, let's talk a bit about your book. You have a brand new book, aptly titled TED Talks, The Official TED Guide to Public Speaking. What made you decide to write this book?
1: The fact that after, gosh, what, 14, 15 years of doing this now, I finally figured out that we'd, we'd actually learn some things by working with all these speakers. I'm not a natural public speaker, um, as anyone who saw that original talk would know. But the point is that um, that what I have had and what with my team we've had collectively, and this kind of book is a team effort really, we've had a ringside view of hundreds of the world's best speakers. Um, we've seen them prepare, we've seen them deliver, seen that process. And over the last few years especially, speakers have wanted more and more to to really engage in that process and really take the time to get it right because the stakes are high now, right? Like you give a talk, maybe it'll be seen by hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people later. So people are willing to invest weeks, maybe months in the process. And that means we started to learn some really cool things from them. So this book, is an attempt to distill some of that knowledge. is to pass on knowledge from the world's best public speakers to others who want to speak. So that's part of it. And the other part is just the belief that there's more need for this now than ever because this beautiful ancient art of speaking to other people with a human voice and all of the extra richness that that brings with it and the ability to better explain and better inspire, better motivate, um, that scales now. It's no longer just limited to the room. It can ripple out across the Internet to thousands or millions of people. So this really matters now. It matters far more than it's ever mattered before. Anyone who cares about anything and wants to make that thing better known has to take public speaking seriously, I think. So those two things, the fact that there was something to say and that actually mattered now more than ever was the motivation for the book.
0: In the book, you state sometimes speakers get it exactly backwards. They plan to take not give. And you emphatically state that there should be a gift in every talk. What do you mean by a gift in every talk?
1: The gift is an idea. So many people think about talks, they're looking for a formula, right, for a talk. They're looking for the form. How do I stand on stage and have the right tone of voice and wave my arms around the right way and gaze out at people and somehow make them inspired? Stop thinking about that. As I look at the TED Talks that have worked and all the great talks that have worked, the reason they worked is that something got transferred, that there was something that was in that speaker's head at the moment they started speaking that somehow migrated from there into the hundreds and maybe millions of people who heard that talk. That, by the way, is an extraordinary miracle because that thing that migrated is a really complex tangled pattern, probably millions of neurons in that pattern. That whole thing gets transferred in the course of a talk That, when it works, is an incredible gift, because if you can give someone an idea, you are changing their life. An idea goes to making up your worldview. It's going to change how you respond to the world in future. And so a better idea literally makes you a better thing, a better person. So anyway, so that is the gift. Almost none of the rest of speaking matters. There's hundreds of ways you can deliver a talk, prepare for a talk. There's thousands of different things you can talk about. There's different styles. None of that matters a whit in many ways. All that matters is that you are acting in service of this thing that's bigger than you are, that you're trying to communicate it to people. You're trying to give them that gift.
0: You state that the number one mission as a speaker is to take something that matters deeply and to rebuild it inside the minds of your listeners. And you just outlined a little bit about mm. that magic that occurs. And in a short TED talk that you did about the book, there's a wonderful animation that articulates this really well. Um, and you ask TED speakers to create a mental construct that listeners can hold on to, walk away with value and in some sense be changed by. How can a speaker do this? How can they create that mental construct?
1: The only way you can do it is to use the elements that already exist in your listeners' minds. How do you do that? By the power of language. And the thing is that it's not your language. It's their language. This is where so many talks go wrong, that speakers use their own jargon, their own assumptions, and, and lose the audience. To build an idea, you have to build it piece by piece from concepts that, that the listeners have. So that's, so that's what a good explanation is. It's, it's, you know this thing that you already know about? Now... What if
0: you combined it with this in this particular way? So it's like combinatorial creativity. It's
1: combinatorial creativity. And and you, you use, you know, one of the great techniques to make that work is to use a metaphor, for example, that shows how these three things that you want to weave together, shape it this way, shape it like this other thing you already know. And that is how explanation happens and an idea gets built.
0: The central thesis to your book is that anyone who has an idea worth sharing is capable of giving a powerful talk. And one of my favorite passages in the book is this, the only thing that truly matters in public speaking is not confidence, stage presence, or smooth talking. It's having something worth saying. Mm. And you go on to state that everyone can learn to tell a good story. But what are the basic tenets of telling a great story after you have the idea?
1: Well, a couple of things to say there. One one is that a story is only one way of sharing an idea. It's probably one of the most powerful ways. Our minds are wired to love stories. And so if you can tell a story that illuminates the idea, that is just a very powerful way of communicating it. Storytelling that goes wrong in a talk, I think, is where it's just, here's an entertaining story, an interesting story, but the audience doesn't get what they are to take away from it. And then it's just, that was just a moment of entertainment or I'm supposed to think that you're a great person and a funny person or whatever. Yeah. But no, I want to take away something that I can use. Then the story needs to allow that. So, you know, in in Ken Robinson's famous talk where he, he told the story of the young girl who was struggling at school, but it turned out that she was a dancer, and so she went to dance school and then became Andrew Lloyd Webber's choreographer and so forth. That was an inspiring story because it allowed everyone to say, oh, creativity is such an important part in the life of kids. I've got to work towards that. It's a very compelling story in its own right, but there was takeaway value from it. And that's how to— you can
0: re- I guess you can sort of project yourself into the story.
1: That's right. I think use stories in talks, but really think about how do I use this story in service of a bigger idea?
0: So I have a confession to make and some backstory before the confession. I teach, in addition to the graduate program here, I teach an undergraduate class. Um, I've been doing it for about a decade, and it's called Differentiate or Die, How to Get a Job When You Graduate. Hmm. And a big component of the class is public speaking and how to present your portfolio and your ideas as as a designer. And I realized when I was reading your book that I have been – Furthering some false data <laughs> You probably know what I'm talking about. I can see by your I can hear by your laugh you're already recognizing what it is. And that is the the statistics that have been completely misinterpreted from nineteen sixty-seven of Professor Albert Meharabian. Do you want to cite mm. those stats or should I? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um sure. I mean, he, he is often quoted as saying that I think the number is only 7% of the content of a talk comes from the words. 40-something percent comes... 38
0: depends on tone of voice and 55% come go. from body language. Yeah, I've been there teaching this for a long time and I have been doing <laughs> my students a big fat disservice.
1: So, so the research was based on on how you communicate emotion, not speaking generally, and that was what he was, he was measuring. So he was measuring the situation where someone says, I like you, but says so in a threatening voice and, and with threatening body language. And in that case, yes, the, the words themselves have almost no no import. It's all in the tone of voice. And that is how emotions are communication. It's why in a talk, certainly, um, how you speak and, and letting your passion come out absolutely matters. But... In terms of communicating an idea, you absolutely need words. Words are the only way that you can construct an idea that matters. Language is, is everything. And so, yes, I, I, I think I think that the, the joke response to someone who said only 7% of uh, communication is words. You say, okay, tell that to me again, but this time don't use any words. You know, <laughs> right, just gestures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not How long work. is that going to take you? <laughs> tell me I've, with your tone of voice yeah. what, what you're saying there. I've yeah. learned
0: this the hard way now. Um, you said that inspiration is like love and you don't get it by pursuing it directly. Instead, you declare that inspiration has to be earned. Can you elaborate? What do you mean by inspiration has to be earned? <laughs>
1: well, when I said it was like love, I meant just in respect of it's in those categories of things that you actually don't want to pursue directly. So if you, if you pursue love directly, you get called a stalker. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and likewise, if you pursue inspiration too directly, what that looks like is, is you say, hey, take me onto the stage. I'm a great speaker. And someone comes on the stage and they – Strut around and project, and have glistening eyes, and say to people, "I have a dream that I want you to share with me." And and there's no dream that has actually been earned or worthwhile. It's all style, no substance, and that is horrible. That is the that is the worst thing. So, what I believe about inspiration is that it's it's a bit of a trap, you know. Like the feeling of having inspired an audience is thrilling. Like if you see an audience stand up and cheer you, that is so thrilling, and and people fall into that trap of pursuing that without the substance. And, and I, I think audience inspiration is actually a response to something hard that's been done, you know, hard work, brilliant work, courage. What is the substantive idea that I can work on? And I might have to work on for years that I can then share with people. And if you share it then authentically and humbly, maybe people will be inspired. But just don't, don't pursue it. Don't try and do that. Try and share the idea. Focus on that.
0: I think one of the most powerful lines in your book is, inspiration can't be performed. Correct. The last thing I want to talk to you about is knowledge. Towards the very end of your book, you write, many of our assumptions about the value and purpose of knowledge and how to acquire it, including the structure of our entire education system, are leftovers from the industrial age. That didn't sound like a, a comment that was... Applauding the way we're doing things. So, can you talk a little bit about why you feel that way? And it was really interesting to me to think about what the alternatives could be. And and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that.
1: So, this is an oversimplification, but there's an old view of education um, that people come into school and that with empty buckets in their heads that need to be filled with knowledge, and that it's education's purpose to gradually fill those buckets with knowledge so that that person can then leave school and go out and do stuff. And in a world where we had to train people to do specific kinds of jobs, um, that may have been an effective enough way, you know, to be a a doctor, you need to learn a certain number of things so that we trust you to do that. Um, To be an effective factory worker, you may need a smaller number of things, but you still need to be able to follow instructions and da, da, da. And so let's push that knowledge into there. I think the world's changed now. You know, knowledge is not in shortage. Anyone with a, with a smart device has access to more knowledge than you can possibly imagine. Um, so I think the core goals of education are different now. Oh, and by the way, the work that we're doing now, mo- anything that can be automated in future is going to be – so what are humans for? We can't create humans whose job is just to do a set of routine tasks. Um, we need to think bigger than that. And I think that's, that's why we want to empower people to be curious first and foremost. Because if you're curious about something, you can find out anything that there is to be found out. You need, just need the motivation to do it. So you need curiosity. You need to be able to evaluate information critically and skeptically, Sure. And you need to understand why you should care. Like, what? I I think we give our kids a tragically narrow set of possibilities about what their life could be. So that, you know, the unimaginative ones, maybe, you know, you still want to be a. Businessman, a lawyer, um, um, a teacher, uh, 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 whatever, and you know, there's sort of four or five traditional things. Then, oh, oh, I want to be a musician or a celebrity or an astronaut or something that's kind of glamorously caught their attention. There are so many amazing possibilities for work in the future that are never presented. There are no role models there showing how extraordinary that could be. So, I think. I think um, if we could do that and get people excited about the future, and Lord knows there's so many things that there are to be excited about the future, and then have curiosity and the ability just to look, knowledge isn't a problem. Knowledge will come. Um, and instead we underplay creativity, we snuff out the flame of curiosity, and we try and cram syllabuses into people, and the spark goes out and it's, it's a crying shame.
0: Do you think that people learn better in groups? I know that you, you've talked a bit about crowd-accelerated learning as well.
1: Yeah, well, that crowd-accelerated learning is just a specific and wonderful outcome of the fact that we can see each other now and you can see any pick any physical skill. You can see examples of it, uh, the best-in-the-world examples of it online and uh, and learn from that and then the best people will be motivated to try and improve on it. And that's how you get these cycles of, of improvement.
0: And that, to me, is the most exciting aspect of what public learning or public speaking can do to inspire each other to find new things and to build on the things that we're listening to. I find that really incredible.
1: Yes, me too. It's, it's a renaissance that's happening. For the first time, we can see examples of the best Educators, speakers, idea sharers out there. We can see what they do. We can be inspired by them and we could be motivated to try to do our bit better. And I I love that cycle of improvement that's happening. I think it's incredibly hopeful. I think the challenge over the next few years is going to be to bring into that process some of the literally billions of new people who are coming online. And, um, you know, we could be in for a few years of just extraordinary flourishing. If we could turn our eyes away from the bad news for a minute and look at the possibilities there, it's absolutely thrilling.
0: I hope we can do that. Chris Anderson, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Debbie, thank you. You can learn more about Chris Anderson on the TED website. His brand new book, TED Talks, the official TED guide to public speaking, was just launched and it is absolutely wonderful. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by DesignObserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.
0: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI powered place.